Hello and welcome to Into the Shadows as We Go. My name is Chantel and this is the very first episode of the show. We made it. All right. And uh, this is new to you, but not new to me. I've been trying to do this for a while, but I'm just going to start filming and putting stuff out and seeing where it goes. Now, on this particular podcast slash YouTube slash community, we're going to be discussing kind of like the darker things in life. Typically, for the podcast portion of this YouTube channel, we're going to be going over case files. So we're going to be doing vintage true crime case files, paranormal story times, um, mysteries and urban legends. If it's dark and a little bit weird, then we in it okay we're in it together we're going to be discussing it now um this particular case this first one for the very first episode of this show is going to be a vintage true crime case now i did want to give a trigger warning for anyone who's not you know like they need to know what's happening before it happens there is going to be a mention of sexual assault mutilation and obviously death or murder um so if you're not in a place to hear that take care of your mental health Go watch something else. Um, I can't really avoid it. It's part of this case. And I wouldn't avoid it because this is her story. Um, I do, However, I do not go into detail. There's no point to me, in my opinion, to go into detail. It's enough for you to know bad things happen, okay? Uh, but today's case is about Nora Fuller, a sweet girl from San Francisco who was murdered when she was 15. And we're going to take a look at her case now. Now, Nora Fuller was born Eleanor Parlene um, in China to English parents. Her mother was typical of the time. She was a housewife, and her dad was this, an engineer on the steamer Taiwo, which I don't know if I'm saying correctly. Now, her father, interestingly enough, um, he disappeared on his job. So, after Nora was born, her dad was working a shift, and at the end of the night, no one could find him. Now, I don't know if it was foul play. I don't know what happened. All I know is that they did grant Miss Fuller, a, well, I guess Miss Parlene at that point, a divorce, and she remarried less than a year later to W.W. Fuller. And that's how Nora Fuller was kind of, that name came into play, but she was originally from Mrs. Fuller's first marriage. Now, I don't know much about her stepdad, W.W. Fuller. I do know that he gave, they had uh, three more children. So three step siblings for Nora. And they ended up divorcing too. Now, the interesting thing about that is that there was not divorces back in the 1900s. Like people would not divorce. They would like hold on to that marriage for everything they got. For me, for Mrs. Fuller to decide that she would rather be alone and deal with the stigma attached to that, like she's not even widowed, they know he's still there, means that the marriage probably wasn't that great, I assume. Um, and she did what she had to do. And I, I know she caught flack for it though, because that meant divorce was not a thing. There was only three ways to get a divorce back then really. And that was um, abuse, adultery, or abandonment. And typically divorces were granted for abandonment with like Nora's first husband because they couldn't find him, but there also was no foul play. They could comfortably assume that he probably abandoned his family because they couldn't find him ever again. Um, and that was a thing that happened back then when people wanted to get a divorce and they didn't really have any other way, the father would just disappear. And that's when the divorce was granted. So for her to choose that leads me to believe the relationship was pretty rocky. Now, for a while, Mrs. Fuller kept everything together. It seemed like she must have been working odd jobs. And also she started renting out the rooms in their house to different boarders and it worked for a while. But eventually finances got tight and Nora stepped in because she's the oldest sibling. We all know that I'm an older sibling, like I'm the oldest, you know how it is. She stepped in and she wanted to help. And so she left school, which was not unusual for that time period to be frank as a woman, 
there was really no other step up. Like there were all women colleges that were being offered at this point, but I believe personally that they were for upper class people or at least for people that had money and Nora did not have that. So her dropping out of school wasn't a big deal at that time. Now she left school and she wanted to find work, but she did try to give her dream a shot. Like, so she wanted to be an actress. And this to me also kind of shows you their relationship, the mom, because I think Nora and her mom had more of a friendship than a relationship. I feel like together they worked hard to kind of keep the family afloat. And the fact that Nora, when she first quit school, tries to apply for theater jobs because she would love to work. She needs to work, but she would like to do something that she wanted to do. And she'd always wanted to be an actress. And it was said that she had a really good voice. Um, she didn't hear back from the theater companies. I, don't, I think it was because of lack of experience and probably her age. Um, and during this time in the economy of San Francisco, there was like a lot of like competition. People needed the work, basically. So, um, but the fact that she tried to go into theater first and the fact that Mrs. Parlene or Mrs. Fuller, that's her name now, let her, <laughs> didn't like try to push her into getting a regular job, leads me to believe that they had a more... Um, like an understanding with each other, like a, a better relationship than most. But and even for Nora's case, after she didn't hear back from theater work, she decided, you know what? I quit school for a reason. I still need to get a job. So she drops that dream and picks up a newspaper, okay? She picks up the San Francisco Chronicle and she starts looking through the ads in the back. Now it says, one ad kind of catches her attention because she's looking for something at this point. She's not really wanting to get rejected again, okay? She's looking for things that are feasible for her to get. She need, they need the money. And she sees this ad and this ad says, wanted young white girl to take care of a baby, good home and good wages, box 120 Chronicle. Now she sees this and she's like, oh my God, yes, I'm a young white girl. Okay. I know how to take care of babies. I took care of three and she's excited because this is something that she could probably do. And she immediately writes back. Now, obviously from what I can tell from the San Francisco Chronicle back then, they would have people put ads in to the newspaper. They would pay for that ad. And I assume they must've paid for like a mailbox or something because it wasn't like she got the address to the person who put the ad in. It would go back to the Chronicle where I assumed that person would come pick up that letter, but it kept a level of anonymity first, you know, for the applier and the employer, you know? So she hears back a week later and the, the postcard that comes says, Mrs. Fuller, in answer to yours, in response to my advertisement, kindly call at the popular restaurant, 55 Geary Street, and inquire from Mr. John Bennett at 10 o'clock. If you can't come at one, come at six. JB. Now, the interesting thing about this postcard, it was received on the day that he asked her to call for him and she'd already missed the one o'clock appointment. So at this point, you know, Nora's kind of like in a rush to get there. She knows how competitive the job market is and she also knows that they need the money. So she tells her mom, you know, I have to go now. We don't really have time to talk about it. I need to go. And she picks up an apple. She eats the apple while she's getting her stuff ready. And her mom just gives her a, a handful of money and says, hey, when you come back, not a handful, we, we didn't have a lot of money. So she gave her like a, you know, sprinkling of money and said, you're going to stop by the store on the way back, get some groceries for the weekend. And you can start on Monday if he gives you the job, wishes her luck and sees her off. Now, of course, Mrs. Fuller doesn't know that this is going to be the last time she sees her, um, which is horrific, obviously, specifically because I know there's probably some guilt there for her. But like, like if she doesn't, she wasn't trying to get a job she may not have died. But again, that's, there's no reason for guilt. Monsters hide in every area of life. She could have been at school and something happened. So, but I know that that's not going to make someone who feels guilty feel better. Um, but that was going to be the last time she saw her daughter. Now, a little bit after six, 
the house gets a phone call and i forgot to mention this so like the fuller household had a phone and that was like some that was some cool stuff back then okay no one had a phone like people would go down to the local bakery or the local store whatever and use their phone because no one had a phone but she had a phone which is pretty awesome and she's like working cleaning doing her mom duties and she hears her son pick up the phone like you know how moms are they can do like a multitude of things at one time and she's listening to her son talk to who she assumes is nora now her son did confirm that it was nora but he kind of was like de depending on the source that you read from nora's voice was either excited or worried she was either happy or sad it was like very all over the place but he was pretty sure it was nora and she hears him talking to her and she can kind of hear that nora saying she's not coming home and mrs fuller is like nah no 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 i gave you money you tell your sister that I said she can go down there. She can, you know, take the job if you want to, but you need to come home. You need to buy the groceries like I asked you to, and you can start on Monday. And Nora reluctantly kind of agrees, right? So Miss Fuller just, you know, she believes that everything's said and done. She said her piece. She knows her daughter's going to come home. They got to get the groceries. Now her daughter does not show up. And I'm trying to, like, again, I'm not a witch. Or a warlock so I was I don't know what happened or what she was feeling but I can assume that when Nora didn't come home she was thinking to herself well I know how the rich works if I was trying to get a job if somebody said that they were gonna go home try to give me an ultimatum and I was you know what I mean I'm the employer they could have easily said that if you leave here you don't have the job and I think in her head she's kind of making those excuses for Nora and was like you know what if that's the case Nora would have I trust my daughter. She would have made the decision that was right. She decided to stay and do the job. That's fine. I'll deal with this next week. Regardless if she's going to get in trouble or whatever their situation was, she's like, I'll deal with it next week. I'll let her just do this. And she just went along with her weekend. Now, when the next week rolls around, mid to late next week, she's like, uh-uh. Now, okay. All right. You may have had to work, but I have a phone. And you know the number because there's only like six in town, okay? she should have called me or at least at the very least in a postcard and she starts to get worried now she does have a little bit of information left over from this correspondence and it's just like this one address that she can go check and she also has the name john bennett but she doesn't have the postcard he sent nor took with her so she goes to the address that was written down and she finds a vacant lot and i can only imagine that feeling that must have overcome her because now everything like all the time she should have went and checked or you know things like that are going to replay in your head and she knows something's wrong there's no reason for someone to give an empty lot as the meeting address that doesn't make any sense so she immediately goes to the police now i don't know how persistent mrs fuller was or what kind of connections she had because a lot of times when the working class people like disappeared or things happened there wasn't a lot of investigation into it unless it was somebody that was kind of important specifically during this time in san francisco so san francisco was going through quite a bit first off the working class were over it okay they were getting treated like crap and they were getting paid pennies and they were starting to kind of rebel against it and at the same time immigrants were coming in so the immigrants were taking the jobs that people were trying to get better pay for so there was a lot of tension racially there was a lot of tension between classes there were walkouts riot it was a lot of stuff and not to mention they had a plague during this time it was the bubonic plague it had come in to san francisco through the rats or with the rats they didn't know that they thought it was the people specifically the immigrants which started a whole nother thing but that you can imagine what it was like to be a police officer during that time it was chaos 
and somehow Mrs. Fuller got somebody to investigate her daughter. So I, she's either persistent or she knew somebody because the police did go out and they, they didn't do as well as they should have. But I will, in that term, for that time, they did do some work. So they go out and they start talking to the people that Nora knew, like her classmates, her friends, and they find out that one of Nora's friends had recently run away. And they were like, well, she ran away to be an actress. Nora probably just did the same thing. Now, the one thing that was consistent with everybody's review or their opinion of Nora was that she wouldn't do something like that. Like a lot of people would leave their family in times of crisis. She wasn't one of them. She was very much into helping her mom. She loved her siblings she wouldn't leave if nothing else she was a dutiful daughter like she wouldn't just leave and just leave everybody to worry about her and that was a consistent report even when other things came out in the case that was something that was said from almost every angle um so they kind of was starting to feel some sort of way about that like maybe she didn't but the one thing that got them was that they interviewed someone who was considered one of Nora's friends and her name was Madge Graham and she was had used to she was a boarder at their house and she was around the same age. I think Nora's 15 and Madge was like 16, 17. So like, you know, close in age, you know, they talk. And Madge said that Nora was seeing someone who was older. And the thing that got them was that his name was John or his name was JB. It was very much related to the letter that she received. And the reason Madge knew this was because she had lied to Miss Fuller on a couple of occasions for Nora so that she could go meet up with her beau. And this is also confirmed as a grocer. There's a grocer in town that everybody used their, you know, his phone. Remember I told you, it was like six, seven phones in the whole community. And the Fullers had one of them. And people would go use the grocery store. And this guy named, I think it's like A. Minky. He, they come and they interview him because I, I guess that's one of the points of contact. And he says, yeah, I thought it was weird too. You know, Nora would come down here. She would use our phone. She'd call the local hotel. And I thought it was weird, but it's not my business. And so like once they received that information, they kind of backed off of the investigation. Now I'm sure Mrs. Fuller was upset, but I also wonder if she felt a little bit of relief. Like, yes, it's easier to be mad at someone to, than to lose them altogether, specifically a child. So I'm sure in her head, she's like, I'm gonna kill her when I see her, but at least she's alive. And that's probably what held her through for the next two weeks. But unfortunately, on February 8th, across town, um, a tenant is being evicted at 2211 Stutter, Sutter Street, sorry, an agent and inspector come out to, you know, eject him. And I guess at this time, it was very hard to eject people or like, you need to get out, you need to, you know, you don't, you didn't pay your bill, you need to go. So they just come with the police and they show up there, they enter the apartment and they find no furniture which is not that unusual because like if he was leaving or he was trying to skip town of course he'd just take his furniture with him but there also was no gas hookup and there had never been a gas hookup which was very unusual for the kind of weather and stuff that they experienced in san francisco during that time um but they just kind of like go through the you know the house together in the dark you know very creeped out but doing their job and then they find a naked woman's de decomposing body on a mattress on the ground in the master bedroom. And that's when kind of this investigation takes a turn. Now, they eventually link her back to Nora. Now, I don't know exactly how for sure. Um, there was a couple of things. Now, she did have the clothes, and I wonder if when they put her down as a missing person, because Mrs. Fuller was the last one to see her, she probably gave them a description of the clothes. But either way, I'm sorry, that's thunder. <laughs> but either way, um, they did link her back and they did have someone 
different sources say it was either Nora's mother or like a brother or somebody identified her and they figured out it was Nora. Now, the scene itself was chaotic to say the very least. Like there was torn clothing all over the ground. Um, there was just stuff strewn everywhere. The stuff that was in the house was just everywhere. Now, but there was, it looked like this was only, like they were only occupying one room in the entire building, basically. Now the case became notorious and it was printed in several major newspapers. I think the notoriety was partly because of Nora's age, but also because of the situation. Um, Now, this case became notorious, and it was printed on several new major newspapers. The notoriety of the crime put a lot of pressure on the police force. I think it ha was due in part to Nora's age um, and the situation. She literally was just looking for work, and then this horrible thing happens. Now, they did note a few things. Like, they started with the investigation at the house itself, and they noted a few things. First off, there wasn't much furniture in this house, and a lot of people hadn't seen a lot, you know, anyone coming and going from the building itself. So they were kind of worried about how they were going to figure out who was actually occupying it. Now, on, in the actual house, the only thing that was new that was there were these new bed sheets. And the only reason they knew that is because it had the creases in there. Now, the house, again, had no heating, no lighting, and the gas hadn't been connected at that point. They knew that for sure. Um, there was no food or dishes of any kind, and Nora's purse was located, but it was missing some things. Like, first off, it was missing the money that her mom had sent her to go get the groceries. Um, and the only item of note that was found in her purse was this postcard, and it said, Mr. M.A. Severbrunick of Port Arthur. Now, obviously, the police tracked that name down, um, but it was kind of a dead end. That person had already left um, the state way before Nora was found or was even supposed to meet the person that she met when she passed. Um, so there was a good, they couldn't really link him back to the whole situation. They don't know why or how she got that card. Maybe the killer gave her that card. We don't know. Um, but the first suspect that they really started talking about, other than John Bennett, because like John Bennett at this point, they couldn't figure anything out about. So they're focusing on the actual person who owns or was renting the property. And his name was C.B. Hawkins. Now, they knew this because obviously the landlord said so. Um, the landlord also had no references for this guy, which was, I mean, to be honest, it was kind of a normal thing during that time. Um, he kind of just took him in based off of his manner, his clothes, um, and he assumed he was, you know, upper class guy. He could be here. Um, but again, there was no internet. So like there was really not, again, not everybody had phones. So it was a situation where it wouldn't have been that easy to just track him down, basically. And so they just kind of took him off his word and let him move in. Now, they also found some letters um, specifically to a Mrs. C.B. Hawkins. Now, the landlord said, I don't know anything about a woman. I'd never seen her. Um, when he said he was coming to town, he was visiting some friends or some family. So it wasn't a situation where he had seen a woman. But he did see, obviously, the C.B. Hawkins guy. Now, they went to check some of the letters that were sent out. And they realized that... A man had come in and had purchased or rented certain things from different uh, stores and then just never paid. Okay. So they knew that he was getting stuff, but because no one else had any kind of information to link back to the actual person, they were starting to believe C.B. Hawkins wasn't real. Okay. And they were definitely believing Mrs. C.B. Hawkins was not real. So 
they were trying to figure out how to track somebody down, but it's just difficult. During this time, there wasn't DNA. Like, DNA was like witchcraft, you know? So it wasn't like they could find DNA. And then also fingerprints. Fingerprinting was becoming a thing in different local areas. But there was no CODIS. There was no database for you to run a search through. So only if you had a very diligent police department with a really good, like, sergeant or, you know, somebody in control that could run something like that. A lot of people didn't do fingerprints either. And again, you gotta remember during this time, um, they had the plague, they had the riots, they had you know, they had a lot of stuff going on in San Francisco. So they couldn't figure out who the Stevie Hawkins guy was. And again, the press were just on them. So they said, okay, we can't figure out who Stevie Hawkins is. The landlord doesn't even have any information to tell us anything more about him. Let's go see who this Mr. John Bennett is. Now, the Chronicle doesn't have any information on John Bennett. A lot of people, just a lot of no information's all over the place, okay? So they go to the restaurant. They're like, somebody has to know something. And they talk to the waiter, thank God. And the waiter was like, yeah, I mean, I know what he looks like. He used to come in often. And the only reason he kind of remembered him off the top of his head, because a lot of waiters and waitresses, you know, you see a lot of people throughout the day, but you kind of remember people based off of things like, obscure things. Like for instance, Mr. Bennett would come in and he would order the porterhouse steak and he only ate the tenderloin. And so because of his habit of only ordering basically the same thing and only eating the same thing, they kind of remembered him. And what they did, the police took the description that the landlord gave. So they had a sketch drawn up from the landlord's uh, description of the guy, Mr. C.B. Hawkins. And they took a sketch of the guy, Mr. John Bennett, and they slowly started to realize these two people are the same people, okay? <laughs> Mr. John Bennett and Mr. C.B. Hawkins is the same guy. We're looking for them like one criminal. So if they could figure out who this is based off of these different avenues, they could probably find Norris Killer. Now, during this time, Norris autopsy comes back and there is no drugs or alcohol in her stomach. And the only thing that she had consumed before her death was an apple, which leads us to believe that right after she met this person, this bad stuff happened. And then she was killed because she didn't eat anything else. Um, there was a slight congestion in the stomach, which is assumed to be due to a small amount of alcohol. They did find like an empty alcohol bottle. And they assumed that perhaps the person had plied her with alcohol to kind of relax her or maybe made her drink alcohol. We don't know. Um, and there were bruises around her larynx. Now, her body was also mutilated, but there's no reason to go into that. And she was sexually assaulted for sure. They realized that through the autopsy. Now, all of her injuries uh, led them to believe that she was strangled and even with this information again they couldn't locate like there wasn't any dna evidence to be pulled from the body there was no fingerprints to be pulled so it was really going to have to rely on witnesses and word of mouth basically so the police were struggling okay they were struggling they couldn't figure out exactly what happened they knew this horrible thing happened to this young girl but they didn't know who they could link it back to and eventually their case is given over to a captain john seymour now and he releases this memo and now to say something about captain john seymour he's not a great guy but he is somebody who wants to solve the case and like by any means necessary which is a horrible attitude to take because then that means you can get the wrong guy but he did move forward with a campaign to try to figure out who killed her. Now, the first thing that he did was he released a memo um, to the public, and I'm going to read it as it is. That the said Nora Fuller, aged 15, Nativity, China, resident 1747 Fulton Street, came to her death at 2211 Sutter, Sutter Street in the city and country of San Francisco. Nope. 
city and county of San Francisco through asphyxiation by strangling on a day subsequent to January 11th and before February 4th, 1902, at the hands of parties unknown. Furthermore, we believe that she died within 24 hours after 12 um, on January 11th. In view of the heinousness of this crime, we recommend that the governor offer a reward of $5,000 for the discovery and apprehension of the criminal. Now, to be clear, $5,000 is over $150,000 for money during this time. So it was quite a bit of money, which means they received several different not-so-great tips. People kind of assumed they knew what was going on, so they're just kind of throwing any names out because they need the money. Again, economic crisis happening. So the police were trying to filter through a lot of different information. Now, I'm going to go over two more suspects because, this, again, this wasn't solved. And honestly, the way they went about... Um, apprehending the suspects and then also choosing who a suspects wasn't correct so there's no point in putting more names out there until we actually have any more information i do i don't know if nor fuller's crime could be solved at this point because it was over 100 years ago most likely it's not i can only hope that god or whatever you believe in that there was some sort of justice cos cosmic justice uh, karma justice something should have happened hopefully to this person that did this um, but one of the other suspects that they assumed and again, I think personally, the John Bennett slash C.B. Hawkins person is the one that killed her. I think that it was planned. I don't think this was the guy that Madge Graham thought she was meeting up with. And if he was, this was always the end game for him. I don't know. I, I don't understand how it would be because she was willing to meet up with him by herself. Um, it didn't feel like it was set up for her to meet a lover. It didn't feel like that because even the way the cards came in, it felt very much like somebody targeted a victim and then took that victim. You know what I mean? Like they set up this a perfect situation. Even the police couldn't track down who this person was. So this was somebody I feel like that probably was a serial killer, somebody that's done this before or at least knew how to do it because he got away. Now, the second suspect they were talking about was Charles Hadley. Now, on January 16th, um, a local paper um, contacted the police and gave Charles name. Now, Charles is a clerk at the paper and the people around him said that he'd been acting a little creepy since um, Nora disappeared. An officer was sent to track him down because he disappeared from his job right after she disappeared too. Um, and an officer was sent to track him down and when the officer located him, he realized that other than the strange behavior, nothing else linked Charles back to Nora. There was no connections via people, uh, places, or anything. They ended up realizing that the reason he was acting so strangely is that he was short on his accounts with his employer. So he obviously was feeling distressed from that. And they assumed that that's why they thought that he was acting a little bit odd. Uh, but there was nothing substantial to link him back to the actual murder of Nora. Now, with that information down, because they had released this information to the public, the police were starting to look a little bit iffy. They're like, who's it? How did you even think it was him? Like, he didn't, it doesn't make any sense. So the police move on to another suspect and his name is Charles Seifert. Now in, 19, in March 1902, a pharmacist was arrested in Davisville for embezzlement. Now I know what you're thinking, how is embezzlement linked to, you know, murder? But the police linked him to Nora because of a relationship that he had with Emma Seawright. She was a friend of Nora's and at least with him, they did find some information that could connect Mr. Seifert with Nora, like that relationship. But there was also some real shady stuff about Mr. Seifert as well. He was known to have a taste for young women and I don't think they had to be willing. I think he was one of those predators that kind of took whatever he wanted. He also had recently shaved off a mustache. Now this mustache 
if you look back at the sketches they made of John Bennett and C.B. Hawkins when they put them together, the one thing that stood out was this handlebar mustache. It was like the biggest mustache that you could have on your face. And he had recently shaved it off. And so the police were like pushing this idea that this man did this. And don't be, let's be clear. Mr. Seifert was no angel. Like he had things like sexual assaults on his history. He was not a great guy. Um, and to another thing, he was staying at the Winchester Hotel uh, and quickly left without paying the same week that Nora was killed. And the Winchester Hotel was right there. Like, and he also frequented the popular restaurant on Geary Street. So there's a lot of connections here, way more than Charles Hadley, which is, they ruined his life when they released all the information thinking that he was the suspect. So at this point, they have some connections, but the problem was as much as they wanted to put forth the idea that Charles Seifert was the one that killed her, when they combined the sketches, when they had the sketches and then they brought him in person to these people that had seen this C.B. Hawkins slash John Bennett slash predator guy, he looked nothing like him. And that made the rounds quicker than anything because the police, the public was like at this point, like obviously Charles Seaford is a bad guy, but we've had several people meet with these different, you know, the C.B. Hawkins slash John Bennett and he looks nothing like him. Like his face is completely different. Nobody could pick him out of a lineup. And they continued to push with the narrative that this was the guy. And eventually the public kind of got outraged. Like they were like, this is, you're just trying to close the case. This isn't doing anything to make it move forward. Now, after this situation, after it was a huge thing, because they really did try to get Charlie, because he's already going to prison for embezzlement. So they were really trying to push that narrative. But because it got out um, how many people disagreed with it, people that had actually met this man, um, a lot of people lost faith in the police force. And eventually, the guy, Captain Seymour, was relieved of his duties and he moved on to another true crime case. And without his kind of um, stubbornness, um, albeit probably not, you know, the best way to move forward in the case if you're trying to find the real criminal, without him there to kind of like navigate it or push it forward or have an agenda with it, kind of faded. And eventually someone else is murdered and then they moved on to that case. So they never did figure out who, who this person was. And obviously like this devastating to the Fuller family. They lost a daughter, they lost a sister, somebody who obviously put them first a lot of the time. Um, and after this like kind of pitiful attempt, even for this, even for Charles Seifert, because they, they stayed very much, sorry, my phone is ringing. They stayed very much pushing that he was probably the person that did this, even after um, people had already come out and said that he definitely wasn't the person that did this. They even found that the handwriting, they tested the handwriting from the original postcards sent from John Bennett to Mr. Seifert's on stuff that he wouldn't have known they were going to be testing, like, because he was a pharmacist. So his stuff, you know, he'd written on a lot of different things, specifically back in the day, pharmacists would have to write out the prescription labels, and it was not a match. Now, after the public and press saw this arrest, they saw it as a pitiful attempt at pinning the murder on someone to cover for the fact that the case was mishandled in the first place. And after that, kind of, like I said, faded into the back. Now, this is the end of this case. There was no other updates. They never figured out who this John Bennett slash C.B. Hawkins guy was. Um, I honestly believe he was a person. I think he was somebody who'd done this before. He set everything up too perfectly as far as he made sure that there was no link to him in any kind of real way because um, he used fake names. And even his accounts were linked to the fake names. So like once he dropped everything after he killed her, he just like moved on to the next city. There was no way to link him because he was using everybody else's stuff. Even even this M.A. Severbrink, that was not even a real 
it wasn't even connected to him. So I think that obviously I pray that Nora's family was able to find peace after her passing. Now, this is going to conclude this particular case. If I ever find any updates or if I find any more information, I'll add to it later on. Um, but that's it. That's Nora Foyle's case. A beautiful young girl who was trying to help her family and it ended horribly. And obviously now this doesn't happen all the time, but it is something that can happen. So I think that the one thing that we can take away from this is to always um, just try to be as safe as we can. Even nowadays, this is about, this happened back in 1902. And I still hear stories where they're like, you gotta stay safe, women. Can't go out by yourself. Worry about yourself. You know, like this still happens now. So, um, but yeah, this concludes the episode, but that was Nora Fuller's case. Um, I hope her family found some peace. I know it's probably impossible, but I do hope that now, if you enjoyed the show, please, you know, comment, like, subscribe, maybe comment below. Um, you know, subscribe if you're feeling a little risky. Um, but I will be back next week with another creepy tale. Until then, stay in the sun and leave the shadows for another day. Bye for now. <laughs>